arm, patting myself on the back. I felt so good about it. But um, the last nine months I was there in 1991, I did nine funerals for young men under 25 years old in the four-block radius oh. around our church building, all of them who died by violence, and it kicked the crap out of me. These were young people who I knew. Uh, most of them had grown up in the programming of the church, and here I was thinking I'm doing all this great work, and nine young people died. Hello and welcome. I'm Tyler Kaufman, and this is the Vile Methods Podcast, the show where we hear stories about the incredible leaders bridging divides, serving their neighbors, and making waves in society. From entrepreneurs and volunteers to community leaders and nonprofit directors, we'll learn what it takes to change the world. My guest today is Mike Mather, an ordained pastor in the United Methodist Church now serving in Boulder, Colorado as well as a faculty member of the Asset-Based Community Development Institute at DePaul University. Mike and I met while I was in a program for young adult clergy called the Transition into Ministry Program. As part of that program, I attended a conference in Indianapolis where Mike was serving a church at the time and doing some truly innovative ministry. He came over to the conference to share his wisdom with us, and we hit it off because we were both graduates of Drew Theological School. We were recently reconnected because I used information from his book, Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, about finding abundant communities in unexpected places for my doctoral dissertation. I started the Vile Methods podcast to explore, inspire, and equip people to make a difference in the world. Mike has great hands-on experience of putting the concepts we discuss into practice, specifically in a church setting. I wanted to have him on today to inspire you to get out there and put more good in the world. Well, Mike, welcome to the show. Tyler, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me on and and a chance to get to know you a little bit better when you're not so far away. Yeah, but part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show today was to talk about some of the work that you've done in South Bend and in Indianapolis, particularly of Bridging Divides, but you did it through the church, which to me is so fascinating because there's so many roadblocks when doing uh, asset-based community development in the church. And so I was interested in why have you done it in the church and how have you kind of made that shift or why did you make that shift towards this different type of engagement with the community? So, um, I would say a couple of things to this, Tyler. I, uh, good question, good questions. I, I did it in the church because um, that was where I felt called to be and because um, I think it's hard any place. I think it's hard inside the church. I think it's hard outside the church. So, um I didn't think, uh, and I, I think my experience has borne that out. Though when I came out of seminary, um, I was thinking about this and doing this in a different way. Uh, and um, I had come out of seminary convinced that, you know, I wanted to um, work with the poor and be really helpful, you know, because what, you know, a 45-year-old um, 
poor person needs is a 25 year old with 19 years of education to solve their problems for them. So I, um, I came out and asked to serve low income congregations. One thing you might not know, Tyler, I can't remember if we talked with them about this the first time, is I served one other church not in South Bend and not in Indianapolis. I served a church one year out of seminary in Evansville, Indiana, and I got kicked out after a year. So um, I went from there to the church in Indianapolis. Again, both both those places were low-income places, and the church in Indianapolis was a historical low-income community um, called uh, Mapleton Fall Creek Neighborhood. The church was named Broadway. It had been the largest church in Indiana in the 30s and 40s. Um, in the 50s and 60s, white flight had hit, and uh, a lot of the, most of the white folks had fled, leaving a remnant in this massive building in what was now a low-income uh, African-American community. And uh, it is a massive building. There's nine kitchens. There's 27 bathrooms Whoa. in Broadway Church in Indianapolis. And um, I was to run the neighborhood programs. And this is, again, this was my calling. I felt great about this. I came in, and the first thing I'm supposed to work with is a summer program. And the summer program is basketball for the boys and cheerleading for the girls. And very painfully, we changed it. There's not time for that story here, but just it was really hard. And it took a couple of years. We built each week around a spiritual principle. We started every day with devotions. We ended every day with devotions. We had math, history, Bible study, poetry, music, violin lessons, recreation, 250 young people, nine to five every day. Broke my arm, patting myself on the back. I felt so good about it. But... Um, the last nine months I was there in 1991, I did nine funerals for young men under 25 years old in the four-block radius oh. of our church building, all of them who died by violence, and it kicked the crap out of me. These were young people who I knew. Um, most of them had grown up in the programming of the church, and here I was thinking I'm doing all this great work, and nine young people died, and you know, I, I didn't know what to do. And people would say to me, oh, but if you hadn't been doing what you had been doing, it would have been worse. And I remember saying two things to that. The first is, no, you're wrong. And the second is, even if you're right, this isn't good enough. Mm. We're here running these programs because we think we're making a difference in the lives of people. That's what we tell ourselves. But no funder ever asked me. All they asked me was, how many, you know, how many young people showed up? How many volunteers did you have? How many contact hours? Nobody ever asked, did things actually get better? Right. By every Nobody standard ever, normal, like you were measuring up to everything that is you're supposed to be writing down on paper and doing well at. Right. And to your point about why in the church, I mean, yes, the church would, it's, it, it doesn't think about that, but it's not only the church. It's, you know, a lot of other places in our society, in fact, if not most, schools and um, social service organizations, you know, this is the way we think about things. You know, feeding programs, how many people did you feed? How many pounds of food did you do? Not, did people get diabetes from what you did, right? Oh. <laughs> we don't ask any of that. So anyway, I left there. And the bishop sent me to a church up in South Bend, Indiana, again, low-income, 
low wealth community. Um, and uh, it was a tiny little church, 40 people in the church. Um, we had a food pantry. And when people came to the food pantry, we asked people, you know, because we had a we got government surplus food, we had a government form. How much is your income? How much are your expenses? And people would say, well, my income is $600 a month and my expenses are $1,200 a month. Well, great. That's so sustainable. <laughs> you know, not much we could do about that for one person, much less all the people who came to the food pantry. So we just put that information in a, in a um, you know, a file folder and put uh. it in the file cabinet because it wasn't any use to us. I mean, it's, yeah. So we came to Pentecost in 1992 and after worship, we're sitting around talking, and this woman says, you said that Peter, reading from the book of the prophet Joel, said that God's spirit flows down on all people, young and old, women and men. And I thought, how good a preacher am I? I'm awesome. It's a half an hour later, and she remembers what I said. I'm really good at this. And I'm like, yes, yes. And she said, so how come you don't treat people like that? Oh. Yeah, dagger to the heart. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, well, when people come to the food pantry, you ask people how poor they are. If you believe God's spirit flows down on all people, young and old, women and men, how come you aren't asking them that? Good question. So the very next day after Pentecost, we started asking people 10 pages of questions about what gifts they had. And I'm not talking about spiritual gift surveys the church did churches do i'm talking about those kind of surveys that say to people you know tell us what you're good at you know have you taken care of children have you taken care of adults have you done it because they're members of your family because you're helping somebody out you know um you know what uh you know have you had a job somewhere can you fix a toaster can you drive a car do you play a musical instrument do you sing have you cooked for more than 10 people have you cleaned up after more than 10 people and we asked three questions at the end. What three things do you do well enough you could teach somebody else how to do it? What three things would you like to learn that you don't already know? And who besides God in me is going with you along the way? Mm. Well, one of the first people who came to us that first week was a little woman named Adele Almaguer, who lived half a block from the church, lived with three generations of her family there, and didn't have enough food. And she said, we asked her what she was good at. She said, um, well, I'm a good cook. So we said, prove it. And she said, what do you mean? We'll cook for the custodian, secretary, and pastor lunch on Friday. So she cooked for us. We paid her for it. It was great. So leadership of the neighborhood organization was meeting. We said, don't meet somewhere else. Meet here at the church and let Adele cook for you. She did. It was great. They loved it. Over the next nine months, she cooked for three different things, local school, local health center, um, local hospital, all held events and needed food. She got paid by him. It was great. Well, then Chamber of Commerce calls. We'd like to have an all-day meeting of your leadership program in our church building. So, well, that day works. We can do that. And she, they said, since we're going to be there all day, we need to use your kitchen. And they, we said, well, you can use our kitchen, but we would prefer you use our caterer. And they said, okay. So we took $20 and bought her 1,000 business cards. Said, La Chaparita Catering, Spunky Tex-Mex Food. And she fed 70 of the civic and business leaders in the community. They passed out her business card to everybody there. Through that, she got connected to the Michiana Business Women's Association. And a year and a half later, she opened up Adelita's Fajitas at the corner of 8th and Harrison in Elkhart. 
Now, if we had asked her when she showed up, tell us how poor you are, we would have all ended up poor for it, and we would have missed a lot of great food. If she had shown up the day after Pentecost, you know, we wouldn't have known this. She didn't need training. She didn't need, you know, me to show her how to do something. She needed people who believed in her and knew her gift and saw it and celebrated it. And I'm thinking, well, this is what I believe. I don't have to change my theology to believe this. This is, this is wound up in my baptismal theology, right? And Pentecost and all these things. And I'm like, so why haven't I been doing anything? And then I realized all the practices in the church around this are built around scarcity, not around God's abundance. And so the only things I knew how to do were to fill empty, to try and fill empty spaces rather than to recognize that those spaces I thought of as empty were actually full of something else. Mm -hmm. And so over since that time in um, 1992, I've been struggling with and trying to figure out constantly how do we pay attention to God's abundance where everybody else sees nothing. Yeah, the world is so, uh, the church world is really fixated on this idea of teach a man to fish instead of just giving a fish. But even that is problematic in this paradigm that you're talking about because what you're saying is pay attention and see what skills, like that person may not know to how to fish but pay attention to the thing they do know how to do and then help to amplify and resource that so that that skill can be used in even more powerful and connective ways. I just think that's yep. a beautiful reset. The, the, yeah, that metaphor that people used about the fishing is terrible because like overwhelmingly people know how to fish. <laughs> they may not have a rod. <laughs> that, that may be more of the problem than the, then um, they aren't fishing, you know. Um, right. You're yeah. like, she knows how to cook. She doesn't have a kitchen. We have one. Yes. And then you're saying we yes. have a caterer. And then, you know, those doors, you're using some of the assets to, to open some of those doors. And that's, yeah, so powerful. Well, using the social capital that we had, right? We were going to, the Chamber of Commerce wanted to use our building. You can use our building. How do we connect that to the gifts of our neighbors, right? So they're coming. They want to use our kitchen so we can say to them, well, what about if you don't use our kitchen but you use our caterer? <laughs> you know, it's just reframing the story. And again, this is not just churches, right? This is, this is government work like this where it doesn't see – the gifts of people in the community and, and social service organizations all the time. Um, you know, we have people in Indianapolis who are doing great work with the local philanthropies um, there who are getting them now for the first time to be paying attention to the gifts of people that they have often thought of themselves as serving. But we in the church, the advantage we have is our language and theology really fits more this recognition of God's abundance. That's the problem that the other places outside the church don't have is they don't have the same framing that we have. We would have a gift for this, but it's become so backwards. One of the things, um, one of the practices we've developed over the course of 
uh, my life in the in working in the church was to take learning journeys to go talk to interesting people who are thinking things when we go talk with economists they would always say to us why would somebody from a church want to come talk to us because they don't think we're serious partners in wanting to see problems solved they think all we want to do is mitigate problems rather than actually help with them or all we want to do is pay more attention to ourselves wow isn't that telling (laughs) it is it is you know and we're like well you know we're here asking you questions so (laughs) can we talk um so yeah you were talking about people not being seen and how it's about paying attention and it always it brings me back to this moment, and I think especially we're seeing it heightened in society right now, where people aren't being seen because of their socioeconomic status or because of their race. And we have these inherent biases that we might not be doing it even purposefully, but we do it. And you tell a story about that, if I remember right, in your book where you were like, oh, yeah, I, I have this lens that's filtering out giftedness of people because I'm seeing them a, a way that society has prescribed me to see. I have the wrong prescription in my glasses. <laughs> and I wonder if you'd talk about just that switch a little bit of, of how you were like, learned how to pay better attention to what was around you in the community. Well, I, I, I think it's more like rather than I learned, I'm, I continue to learn. <laughs> I'm learning, <laughs> you know, um, because I think of this all the time, but, I would say a couple things to this. One is in the story I just told, you know, in recovery movements, we say that you don't act your way. You don't think your way into new ways of acting. You act your way into new ways of thinking. And I think this is absolutely true, not only in recovery movements, but just generally Mm -hmm. in life. And so when people showed up at the food pantry and what we asked them was how poor you are, it wasn't that we weren't thinking right. It was that we were asking the wrong question. If we asked a different question, if we started asking people like, what gifts do you have? Then it started changing what we did in the world. So um, when I moved back to Indianapolis in 2003 and back to the same church I'd been at before, one of the things was um, a friend of mine uh, shortly after I moved to Indianapolis moved to Indianapolis too. His wife got transferred there and he moved into our neighborhood and um, his name is Diamon Hargis. And um, we ended up calling him the roving listener because he was always listening for the gifts of people. And he would just come talk with me every day with his one-year-old daughter and say to me, Oh Mike, I just met this guy at the corner of 32nd Broadway. He's a, he plays chess on his front porch every day and all the young people gather around him. He's teaching them about life while he's doing this. Well, this is not the reputation, you know, of, of our community, nor the reputation of men in our community. Or he'd say, oh, I just ran by this local gang at the corner of 32nd and Broadway, and one of them's a mechanic, and one of them's um, a musician, and one of them's a poet, and, you know, and he's telling me these stories all the time. Well, we ended up hiring him in partnership with the local development corporation to identify the gifts of our neighbors. And one of the things he comes back and tells me a little bit into this is there are like 37 gardeners in the four block radius around the church. Now, the reason I mentioned this in the context of my learning is when I was at that church in the, in the nineties, in the early nineties, I had hired 
um, people from Purdue University, which is about an hour away from Indianapolis, to, from their agriculture school to come and do community gardens in our neighborhood because I thought people didn't know how to do this. Now it's 15 years later, and, Di and Diamond comes back and says to me, there's 37 gardeners in the four-block radius around here. Well, this had been completely invisible to me, right? I hadn't seen this. Because I thought, well, these people are poor, and that means people don't have stuff. People don't know how to do things. I'm not, you know, patting myself on the back about it. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you how blind I was. Actually, um, one of the pastors at Broadway, a woman named Rachel, went and met with a group of young people who were blind, and she said to them, how does the seeing world treat you? And they said, well, that's the wrong language. And she said, I don't know what you mean. And they said, it's not the seeing world, it's the sighted world. And she said, I don't know what you mean. And they said, just because you have sight doesn't mean you can see. Well, this was true of me. I was looking at the people of our neighborhood as poor people who didn't know how to do stuff, who didn't know stuff, rather than as people who didn't have money. That was what they didn't have. They were creative, bright, entrepreneurial, you know, um, artistic, um, uh, good at math. I mean, all sorts of things. Their issue was they didn't have money, but because, you know, I'd been trained well <laughs> in society and in the church, I only was looking for what was missing. So I was blind to the over 37 gardeners in four blocks. There was a woman, Miss Jackson, who lives in the 2900 block of Ruckel Street, grows beans on her front porch so they can provide shade during the summer. <laughs> right I mean, there out in the brilliant. open. <laughs> yes, yes. And I walked by this house nearly every day. She had babysat my son wow. when he was born back in the 90s. And I had not. This is the, you know, how bad this blindness can affect us. This wasn't somebody I didn't know. I did know her, but I didn't see all around her and her, her life fully because, you know, I needed to be needed. Actually, one of the things that makes me think of is, you know, every time we filled out a grant request at Broadway in Indianapolis, you know, one of the questions on a grant request in these such settings is what is the need, biggest need in your neighborhood? And we started writing every time we filled out one of those, the biggest need in our neighborhood is to be needed. And the thing that happened with that is always funders would come and want to talk to us about that. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> we'll show you. That's it fascinating. Meant... It like opened a door to teach them and reset their, their understanding because you were just <laughs> forthright with it. Right, right, right. We could have, you know, we knew what they wanted to know, right? right? They wanted us to say, well, you know, this percentage of people don't graduate from high school. Um, the income level is at this level. There's high rates of diabetes in our neighborhood. That's what they wanted to know. But, or that's what, that's what we knew they expected to know. I, I really think people want to know something else. They just don't know what it is they want to know yet. I feel like these stories are a great example very practical example of what 
is talked about when we talk about switching from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. And often that just gets applied to money and funds in an area. And we're really talking about something more than that, really talking about seeing and looking for and naming the gifts of, of people who are thought of as having a scarcity, being poor, and seeing that there's more there. That just so I'm I'm curious about the the form you said there's like a ten page form that you used. I mean that seems like a pretty yeah. big shift. So was that a a form that you were you guys were just handed or did you have prescribed questions? Did you come up with them? Because I'm guessing that there are other churches sure. like, yeah, but where do I even start? Well, so I, I will say a couple things about this. I'll tell you where we got it. I had written, a, I had read a little monograph years before by, I just hadn't figured out where it needed to be applied, but it was written by John McKnight, and it was called The Future of Low-Income Neighborhoods and the People Who Reside There. I'm pretty sure it was written back in the 80s. I came across it in the in the 70s, I'm sorry. I came across it in the 80s, in the late 80s. And one of the things in the back, in the index of this little monograph, was a survey that had been devised by the Lawndale Neighborhood Association in, in the sh- Chicago neighborhood of Lawndale. And it was this survey. And I had never thought of, ever thought of using it in the church. I just... Um, but it was this, it was that 10 page survey and we changed some of the questions. Like I said, the three questions we asked at the end were a little bit different than what were asked in that survey. But, um, that survey became what we used at the beginning. Now, after several years, we dropped using that survey because we found that just having conversations with people was what was more helpful than filling out a survey. And, and for a couple of other reasons, if I can say a word about this for a minute, when you ask people what their gifts are, often people don't know. Um, if you, even if you ask people specific questions like this, they might say it. So like you might ask me, so Mike, what are your gifts? And I might tell you, I'm a good singer. No one who knows me would tell you that I'm a good singer. It's not because I'm lying. It's because I think I'm a good singer. But if you asked me a question like, what do the people who know you and love you, what would they tell me you do best? I would tell you things, and none of them would be, well, they all tell me I'm a great singer. (laughs) Um, So uh, the surveys, you know, again, it was a good entry point for us to begin to train our minds to pay attention to the variety of things. But I would think what happened over the years was we began to understand more and more that what we were really seeking was the opportunity to fall in love with people. And then when Jesus says in John 15 over and over again, love one another, you can't do that unless you really get to know one another. Mm. And so finding out, I mean, I just think the whole purpose of mission is to invite us to fall in love with one another. And Um, So whatever ways we could do that, we needed to do that for, you know, at the beginning with the food pantry, it meant changing the question later on. It meant, you know, well, I, and we ended up not having a food pantry anymore. It meant not doing the programs we had done before, not because I killed them. I want to clarify this because sometimes people say, well, 
you you stop doing programs. It, it was less that. Um, I didn't kill them. I just buried the dead. Um, <laughs> when 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 programs died, we grieved them. We celebrated them. We we thanked God for the gifts they had given us. But then we moved on to something else, and that was. Yeah, as you're talking about that, it it reminds me of kind of this barrier that I see for a lot of people, which is they have the list of giftedness, and then it can be really tempting for a leader like in your position to to look at them and want to fit everyone some particular place and kind of micromanage in a way the use of that giftedness and it reminds me of this transition that happened where you you've talked about him a little bit but you gave Diamon a little bit more authority in those places or helped to kind of uh hold his authority with him and then he started helping to fit people in like you um if i remember the story right and you can correct it yeah. there was a playground that needed repainted and he was yeah. he said something to the effect of can i employ a few of the teenagers and that that yeah. shift of he had that power then to kind of employ them and do what needed to be done in the community yes more and more and more and and this is really important for white institutions that work in particularly african american communities but i would say black and brown communities and minoritized communities of any kind I mean, this is really important for us. We want to be the heroes. We want to be seen as the ones who are helping. But our gift, the gift we can do, is to shine a light on where those gifts are already in the lives of people around us. The real gift we have is not our expertise. One of the things I had to lay aside was, you know, I have a lot of really cool ideas, if I do say so myself. <laughs> but one of the things... I realized is it wasn't helpful to do my cool ideas that we would support anything our neighbors wanted to do as long as it wasn't illegal or obscene. And we were a little flexible on the illegal. I mean, it was just it, people around us were creative and thoughtful and interesting, and we weren't recognizing that. And part of this was I still remember, uh, and this still happens to me, people will, will ask me and will say to me, Hey, Mike, um, you know, how do I get people engaged in my church? And it is entirely the wrong question. It comes at it the wrong way. Is The issue is, how do we get engaged with what God's doing in the lives of people who are around us? That's what the work is. So my job with Diamon was a lot. So Diamon was, in the eyes of the world, somebody who didn't have a lot. But man, he is a genius of community a genius of community. And yet, um, you know, this wasn't recognized in a lot of places. So my job was to find ways to support that and then get out of the way. And then, um, so I would do things like, <laughs> one of my favorites was, uh, hey, Diamon, we're having a meeting tonight of the staff parish committee at the church. Could you accidentally show up at the beginning and bring one of the, your neighbors with you? And so he'd show up at the, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, 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 can I, can I, 
I forgot you all were meeting tonight. Can I introduce you to this neighbor of mine? His name's um, uh, oh, what was it? His name's Kwanzaa, and he leads the Indiana Reggae Band. Would you all introduce yourself to him, and and then he'll tell you a little bit about himself. It took five or ten minutes, right? It was easy. That's amazing. And and and, and after about the third or fourth time, G- Diamond showed up accidentally at the beginning of the meeting. When he'd come in, people would start laughing <laughs> because now they were understanding what was happening, right? When people laugh, that's when they're learning. That's, that's the moment when things are becoming clearer, right? So, um, you know, m- my job was often to run interference. When the local development corporation, we had hired Diamond to do the roving listening, they would, the, we, we had made it really clear that we were the supervisors at the church, and they agreed to that. Well, then they'd come to me and say, hey, we want Diamond to hand out flyers, mm. and it was my job to say no, and they'd say, why not? And I said, well, there's two reasons. First of all, handing out flyers doesn't do any good, <laughs> but secondly, that's not his job. His job is to name the gifts and talents and dreams and passions in the lives of his neighbors. If you're having him do that, that's going to take away from what his job is. Now, if Diamond had to say that to them, that would have been tougher. My job, it's, it's my calling to do that part of things, to get out, to clear things out so that he can do what he does. One of the things you know about this, because I wrote about it in the book, is we hate the word empower. We don't, we don't use it. We don't like it at all or anything because it means to give power. And this issue means that people don't have power. And our issue is people have power. It's our responsibility to shine a light on that so other people see it and know it. And I can just tell you that the reason I changed my mind about this is because it was hard for me to give up the idea that my power wasn't the biggest, most powerful thing in the room. Um, so yeah, it's such a hard mindset shift for so many. I've I had a discussion with some higher ups in the, in the church than myself, and we were discussing what do you count, and they kept using that language of uh, finding empowering people, and I said, well, like. It, let's at least shift it to like helping people to claim their power. Like maybe there's roadblocks in their way at le- at the very least. <laughs> yes. And then stop yes. doing the target with the target audience was the other side of it. And it was always this piece of the target audience is always what people do we want to add or what people are already here. And we just want to kind of magnify that. And I remember getting to this point and I think it was after I read your book and they approached me about this discussion, I said, look, the target audience is your immediate neighborhood, and it's going to piss a lot of people off that want to commute into church that I say that. But the target should be identifying the gifts and helping people to claim them and getting some stuff that's blocking that happening out of their way. But it is difficult because we've measured things in a particular way and I like, I'm just going to call it the good old boys club <laughs> likes things to be a particular <laughs> order. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do we Go get ahead. past, you know, building some of those, those relationships like you were talking about and across those, the racial lines and stuff. And you, you've gotten that, I think a lot of it, which is just being open and paying attention. 
that sometimes that seems well, like it's too simple, but actually that's kind of where it resides. So there are two things about this. One is the way we get past it is by practicing something else. We may, our head may not be there yet, but by, by doing things in a different way, again, like, again, just changing the question at the food pantry, it forced us to grapple with now, what do we do with the gifts of people? Right. Back right? into acting now, our way into being. That's right. That's right. Now, the biggest challenge to all that, at least in my life, and the biggest challenge to that in the institutions in which I've worked too is it's not hard to do the new thing or it's not hard to think about doing the new thing. What's hard is to stop doing the old things so you have room and space to do the new thing. That is that's the real challenge because we aren't unlimited we don't have we aren't infinite we aren't god we only have so much time and energy and if our energy is all spent on the scarcity side we're never going to have time to spend it on the abundance side mike thank you again for being on yeah. i really appreciate it it was wonderful talking with you and getting to little, know a little bit more about your story and and hear the stories straight from you instead of reading them it just adds a little extra <laughs> ump with the extra details in there appreciate it now it is time for a game of would you rather this or that all right mike first question we'll make it a an easy one well hopefully this or that <laughs> mountains or ocean mountains are you just saying that because you moved here no i'm saying that <laughs> i'm saying that in fact because i moved here because now i've been getting being able to enjoy it like i'd never had an opportunity to in indiana i love that all right another this or that pet snake or pet lizard i would say a pet lizard uh snake i'm not huge on either one of them but um, the first time I did a blessing of the animals, somebody brought an iguana with a sombrero on. To what? So, so that, you know, makes me feel especially connected to the lizard. That's amazing. <laughs> now I want to have a like blessing of the animals just so I can have the chance to do something like that. We have somebody in our community that has a ball python, and oh. I'm sure she would bring it out. <laughs> All right, and then the final, would you rather? Would you rather be able to drink whatever you wanted without consequences or eat whatever you wanted without consequences? Probably eat whatever I want without consequences. Food is awesome, and it seems like um, there gets more and more, you become more and more aware of the diversity of food around and just all the different tastes and smells and things. Yeah, I definitely have to say eat. All right, and then this, this final big question may be related to food. It may not. You can take it whatever you want. Uh, it could be an experience, however you want to take it. But what is the Indianapolis, Indiana staple that everyone who lives there or visits simply must try? So that's pretty easy. It's the tenderloin. Um, the pork tenderloin, because, you know, I grew up in, in Indiana, and I grew up actually for a while uh, right outside Indianapolis, but 
whenever you ordered a tender, whenever you order a tenderloin in Indianapolis, a tenderloin sandwich, what you get is a piece of fried tenderloin about the size of a plate on a bun the size of a regular bun. So when I went out to seminary at Drew University Theological School in Madison, New Jersey, I remember going to a friendlies nearby um, and ordering the tenderloin, and they brought me this tiny little thing on a regular size, a regular size bun, but the tenderloin fit within the bun. And I was like, what's this? And he said, well, that's a tenderloin. And I'm like, well, no, it's not. <laughs> And then I discovered, oh, this is an Indiana thing. I just didn't realize. That sounds delicious. And I feel like I have missed out because I have gone to Indianapolis and done the duck pin bowling, which I highly suggest for anyone, with Mike, actually. Yeah. Uh, yes. But I have not experienced the tenderloin sandwich the size of a dinner plate. That sounds sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Method Heads, we want to keep this an exclusive community, so please do not subscribe to the podcast. The algorithm would put us in front of more people and get our conversations into too many neighborhoods. Do you have questions for myself or a guest? A suggestion of a topic you'd like covered on the show? Email me, slide into my DMs, or post your question in the Facebook group. Until next time, be vile by daring to put more love in your neighborhood.